I've realized recently that I am holding a lot of grief. Obviously, there's the pain of losing our amazing student, Carolyn, back in January. She was the first student in 19 years to die on my watch. She was sharp and caring and sarcastic, and the blood clot that took her life so suddenly was not fair. It wasn't just that she was young, she was our sister. The grief is not as crushing as it was, but it's still right here. And it comes flooding back every time something else happens. That kind of grief never goes away. But also, it's not the only grief that I hold. For reasons that I won't go into right now, we had to ask a student to leave the community. And while it was necessary, I am grieving their loss. I grieve the massive trauma that several of our students have experienced in their youth. I grieve the intense chronic pain one student is dealing with right now. I grieve my brother's alcoholism. I grieve my good friend's just recent diagnosis of Parkinson's and my best friend's as yet undiagnosed chronic pain. I grieve the harm done to trans youth and adults by the hundreds of bills across this country being passed and considered. I grieve our inability to hear each other's pain across deeply rooted belief. I hold so much grief. And I imagine you do too. What grief do you bring with you into this room tonight? Sitting in grief seems appropriate tonight. Jesus, son of Mary, had supper with his friends and they didn't know that it was the last one. He did. Imagine that he grieved, looking around that dinner table at those men and women. I imagine he looked at Judas and that brought a certain kind of grief, peculiar form of grief, the betrayal of his friend who he had chosen just like the rest of them. The fear, knowing what was coming. Imagine he looked out the window of that upper room and could see the occupying Roman soldiers and the municipal court where he would be tried the next day. Imagine he longed to change everything. And later, kneeling on the hard ground in the Garden of Gethsemane, begging God, the Maker, to allow him not to die. The pain in that. I know that this is needed. I know we've got a plan. I know, I know, I know. But I don't want to. It's going to hurt. What if there's another way? Say there's another way, please. And God is silent. Will God show up for us in the midst of our grief? In the midst of this story, will God save Jesus? No. Later, we're going to strip this altar as a sign of the betrayal and death of Jesus. 
We'll take out the candles and the hangings, the communion vessels. We will empty this chancel of decoration and light, and we empty ourselves as well, pouring ourselves out in preparation for the crucifixion tomorrow. And the altar will mysteriously stand in for the body of Jesus. We will wash it down with a combination of water and communion wine, and we will read Psalm 88, a psalm of lament. (laughs) That word isn't nearly enough. Psalm 88 is a psalm of misery and abandonment. There is no good news there. Only the crying out of a grieving, wounded soul. Scholar Walter Brueggemann says this psalm is an embarrassment of conventional faith. An embarrassment. We're supposed to find good news, right? An end to the story that offers a way out, but there is no good in this psalm. No hope, no praise, no redemption, and God is silent. One of our students, one of those I mentioned with significant childhood trauma, told me this morning that 88 was one of their favorite psalms growing up because it made them feel represented. The harm inflicted on them, the emptiness and abandonment all resonated with their experience. As a child, they felt God was silent. This psalm we will read together, like so much of our lives, is not superficial sadness. It's not performative melancholy like the people we used to pay to mourn and wail in the past. And it's not, it's not even performative anger or persecution like the street preachers we had on campus just last week who made it sound like they care about our souls but actually admitted on the megaphone that they were only ticking the box of telling us about our sins so that they themselves would be found sinless. Now, this psalm is deeply real, painfully vulnerable. This psalm, like so much of our lives, is R-rated for misery. It's not polite, it's not encouraging, it is bleak and angry and loud. The psalmist cries out, not in a poetic way, but in a wailing, their voice cracking, Like, Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The psalmist sings, my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol, the land of the dead. They cry out, I am like the dead, the forgotten, forgotten even by God. They moan, I cannot get out. I am blinded by tears and grief. I clench my fists and beat forlornly at the door, but you do not answer. And to all of these pleas in this psalm, God is silent. The psalmist mourns without reassurance. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the shades rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Are your wonders known in the darkness? And God is silent. These are rhetorical questions, for the psalmist feels and knows the answer is no. Though they long with all their being for the answer to be yes. And the psalm ends in Hebrew and English with the word darkness. 
Monday, Thursday, y'all. We know this feeling. To a greater or lesser extent, we know this feeling in our bones. Actual pain, or a night, or weeks of illness, the end of a relationship, the death of someone that we held so dear, seeing a political or a family conflict coming like an oncoming storm and powerless to do anything against it, only brace for the pain. We have been in this darkness. A few weeks ago, we read Psalm 121 at Nosh. It includes the line, the Lord will keep you from all evil. And we in this community looked around at each other, recalling the last few months, and I asked, will God keep us from all evil? Is that what's happening on Monday, Thursday? Jesus does not do the thing that we want. The bad guys do not get their comeuppance. Pastor Alex reminded us on Sunday about thwarted expectations. We expect David, sexy warrior, politician, rock star David, and we get blessed are the meek. And why have you forsaken me? We desire power of empire and we get the embrace of being truly known. We expect to be on the winning side of a fight and we find ourselves empty and alone. And so what do we do then? We keep showing up. Peter goes to the courtyard and watches and waits. He denies Jesus, of course. No way he was going to be crucified too, but he shows up to bear witness to what's happening. Mary Magdalene and the other women show up at the cross, helpless to stop it. We show up in front of each other, our own wounds revealed like Jesus to Thomas. And we are alone together. Because then we are a little less alone. We work with what we have now. We do what is in front of us. We care for those we've been given care for. And we call that enough. That is our yes. And when we do these things, when we show up here knowing that we will be emptied, knowing that the gospel of Jesus Christ demands that we release all that we cling to. When we keep showing up, we become the presence of God. And God is not silent. God weeps with us. God grows closer to even the dead. And God is our companion in darkness. And that is the grace of Monday Thursday. That is the good news of the Last Supper and the foot washing and even the time in the Garden of Gethsemane where two or three are gathered, not even dozens or hundreds, where two or three are gathered. God is in the midst of us. And we are not alone.
In the Episcopal burial rite, at the very end, when we commend the dead person to God's care, we say, all of us go down to the dust, yet even at the grave we make our song, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. Even now, at the door of God's shameful death on a cross, even now as we hold the weight of our collective grief, even now as we wonder and doubt, we make our song. And we hope that it will be enough. Amen.